1: This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media. Thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au
0: I started thinking, what if we're wrong about Jesus? Well, that'd be devastating. What if the Jesus of our perception is not the Jesus of the Bible?
1: Hi, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. What if today's Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible? In Perception May Not Be Reality, Pastor Jeff summarises the biblical Jesus in order that we can worship the
0: living Christ. Revival is intentional. If we wanna be changed and wanna see the movement of God in the valley and in our church, then we've gotta get back to the biblical Jesus.
1: This is today with Jeff Vines.
0: You have a Bible with you. Turn over to Matthew chapter eight, verse eighteen. We'll get there momentarily. Um, I've been away for a few weeks, but I got a, an opportunity to go back and visit the place where I grew up. And you know, you never know what's going to happen to you when you do that. The feelings of nostalgia and the memories. And I took a little day trip over. It doesn't actually take you very long, but I decided to spend the day driving around the places that I frequented as a child. And I went over to my old elementary school, Eastside Elementary, and it's amazing the memories that came back. And I thought it was uh, just kind of a a God thing that the memory that came back to me would be a good intro for a new series that we're doing. I thought about my fifth grade teacher, Miss Treadway. Now that's a story in and of itself right there, because Miss Treadway in modern day lingo was hot. But you know, (laughs) you know, hey, a lot of kids have had crushes on their teachers, right? You know that. You know that can happen. And boy, did I have a big crush on Miss Treadway. She had the nicest perfume. Oh, never mind. Anyway, <laughs> it's not about Miss Treadway, but she had this uh, this interesting game that we would play in fifth grade every day before lunch. Uh, she would ha- have a boy and a girl. She would always choose the girl, and the girl she chose was always Dina Casita. Now, Dina Casita is another story in and of itself. Uh, she was a half Cherokee Indian, long black hair, very dark skinned, beautiful lady. Everybody in fifth grade class wanted to hang out with Dina Casita. But the teacher would always choose her to participate in this game. I don't know why, I never asked. I just was like every other guy. I just wanted to look at Dina Casita and, and it was fine with me if she chose her. So uh, she would choose her and she would put an eraser on Dina Casita's head and place her on one side of the classroom. And then the boy that Dina chose would have an eraser placed on his head and be placed on the opposite side of the room. The teacher would say, go. And at that point, the girl would chase the boy that she had chosen. And if she could catch the boy, then the girl's got to go to lunch first. If she couldn't catch the boy in a reasonable amount of time, then the boy's got to go to lunch first. Now, the key is you had to have this eraser on top of your head. And if at any point the eraser fell off your head and you weren't allowed to touch it, then you automatically lost now, for some reason that I did not learn until sixth grade, uh, Dina Casita chose me every time. Now, you know I'm a man and we men are pretty shallow creatures. So we automatically thought, I thought that she chose me because she liked me, because I was the handsomest boy in school, because she loved me and she wanted to hug me and kiss me and hang out with me. So that's, that's what you think when you're a guy that I was her dream man, oh, how wonderful I am. So that's what I'm thinking, that's how I interpreted, And it wasn't till sixth grade that I learned, uh, first of all, uh, that our perception when it comes to women, and we know this as we grow older, most of the time is wrong. And most men spend their entire lives trying to figure out the woman they married, right? That's true, guys, it is true. And that's never gonna happen. Let me tell you, rest assured, it's never gonna happen. So it's okay, just accept it and make your peace with it. And so, Uh, I learned in sixth grade that Dina was not choosing me because of all these wonderful reasons I had concocted in my mind. She chose me because I was easy to beat. (laughs) Because when you're in fifth grade as a woman, you're not thinking about romance. You're thinking about taking the world back from the men the way it should have been in the beginning. You see? You see? And so Dina Casita chose me because She knew she could win and the women could go to lunch and she would be a hero and she would lead the charge. Well, let me tell you, when I found that out, I was mad. (laughs) I was mad because I was letting her catch me. (laughs) That's my story and I'm sticking to it. And so when I found out that it was all about because I was easy to beat, I broke it off with Dina Casita. Now in her mind, there was nothing to break off because there was no romance, but in my mind, I put an end to it right then and there. I started thinking about that and how, you know, being wrong about some things doesn't really matter that much. You can recover. I did. I went on to meet my wife later, my beautiful wife, Robin, who's 20 times a better look on the Dina Casita. <laughs> 20 times, 30, 100. And so you recover. But there are some mistakes that we make, some perceptions that we have, that can be quite devastating, right? I started thinking as I was away, what if we're wrong about Jesus? Well, that'd be Devastating. What if the Jesus of our perception today is not the Jesus of the Bible? What if my mom and dad were wrong? Although well-intentioned, what if their vision of Jesus or their understanding was skewed? It wasn't right. They were wrong. That our understanding of Jesus today in America, what if if it was simply inaccurate? I mean, the effects would be devastating, right? Because if you think about it in America, in our history... Our perception of Jesus changes about every 10 years. The Jesus of today is not the Jesus of the 70s. And the Jesus of the 70s is not the Jesus of the 20s. And the Jesus of the 20s in America is not the Jesus of the late 1800s in our country. And in some cases, they're direct opposites. So how how do we know that our perception of Jesus corresponds with what is real? Now, let me just give you a few examples on the screen. Just recently, today, Clifford Davis has the buttoned-up Jesus. The CEO. Jesus today is a visionary, a salesman, a leadership. And if you go down to Barnes and Noble, you're going to find literally tens and tens of books that talk about Jesus and his business principles. Jesus is the great CEO. Jesus is the great visionary to accomplish what you need to accomplish in life. If you move back a little bit, in the 19th century, Courier and Ives came out with a print, The Feminine Jesus, where Jesus is a sweet spirited, soft mannered, kind, and gentle soul, like a mother who loves all her children and requires nothing from them. Jesus is kind of like a big old savior that he wants you to come and sit on his lap and he'd tell you a bedtime story. 1920, Eugene Oliver came out with Christ the Yogi. This is a Jesus who is in touch with the energy of the universe, an example of meditation in the metaphysical world. And then in 1977, Ralph Kozak came up with a laughing Jesus. I remember this. This was deep contrast to the medieval man of sorrows. This is a Jesus who lightens up a little bit, who's not so serious all the time, who loves to party and have a good time. And then you think about it today, I asked Patrick Gorley to create a stage for us and some mannequins that would picture the modern Jesus. So we have Jesus the butler over here. That's the modern America. That's the American Jesus today. He's like a waiter or a waitress. He comes over and says, what do you want? We give him our order and then we tell him to go away and let us get back with our life. Or he's like a business CEO, give us great principles. Or he's like SoCal Jesus with a surfboard. We're just hanging out with Jesus. He's our buddy. Let's go surfing. Let's hang out. We want to chill with the Messiah. (laughs) And he's our buddy buddy. But man, this could be serious. I mean, what is he really like? And just because we think he's like that in America, does that mean that's what he's really like? Now, I want to give you two examples in the Bible of two guys who came to Jesus and they had it all wrong. And I want you to notice Jesus wasn't that sensitive with them. It's pretty straightforward. In Matthew chapter 8, 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And then a teacher of the law, now some translations will say scribe, came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now, I look at that and I thought, wow, Jesus, you're kind of being hard on this guy. He says, I like your teaching, Jesus. I like your words about the abundant life. You teach with great authority. And those miracles you do, they're pretty awesome. I want to tell you that I'm coming to you today, Jesus. I'll follow you anywhere you lead. And Jesus says, look, pal, birds of the air have nests, foxes, they have holes. I got no place to sleep. I don't have an address. You, You understand that. Why is Jesus so harsh? Well, in the first century, when you had scribes, they were notorious for hooking up and attaching themselves to a rabbi who would come on the scene picking up their tent and all their possessions and bringing them with them and traveling with the rabbi until they had received everything they think they can get from the rabbi and then going and moving on to the next rabbi. It's Jesus' way of saying, no, no, no. If you're going to follow me, if you sign on the bottom line, I want you to know what that means. You leave all that stuff behind. You're coming and roughing it like everybody else and you're not moving to another rabbi. Once you come to me, that's it. I'm your rabbi for the rest of your life. He just wants to make sure he understands what he's getting involved in if you really want to follow me. The second guy comes and he says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now that seems cruel to me, doesn't it? He says, Jesus, I like your authority, I like your miracles, I like the power with which you speak, I like the abundant living, I like the life you've come to bring. I tell you what, let me go and bury my dad, and I'll come and then I'm yours. Jesus says, No, you come now. Let the dead bury the dead. What does he mean? Well, let me go and bury my father is a first century colloquialism. That means this, let me first go and work with my father until I gain my inheritance and build a family business. And then when I've gotten all my money and resources and goods, then I'll come and I'll follow you, Jesus. And you know what? Jesus says, no, you won't. You come now or don't come at all. Let the spiritually dead take care of the physical dead. Let those who are not spiritually alive hook themselves up or attach themselves to temporal things that are dying and in decay. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to come now and it's going to be for eternity.
1: This is today with Jeff Fiennes. The message Perception May Not Be Reality is about knowing the true Jesus of the Bible, the Saviour of the world. Let's continue with Pastor Jeff.
0: Now, I think this is an important question to ask because here, here's why we stop and pause and do this series. Is because I've said this before, and I hope you believe it, that we want revival around here. We want this to be a place where when you come, people are getting saved every weekend. We want our ministry that's happening here and across the globe, where people are getting saved, where people are having their lives changed. We want revival to where people are getting healed on a weekend, they're being cured of their addictions. The power of the Holy Spirit is moving among this body. He is hovering over this place. And as you look at that, you know that's always connected with revival. And revival is always connected with a return to the truth of the identity, the power, and the workings and doings of Jesus Christ. So if we miss it, and we let Jesus become the American Jesus, revival will never come. Revival is intentional. If we want to be changed, and we want to see the movement of God in the valley and in our church, then we've got to get back to the biblical Jesus, and I want to start the series by giving you three statements that summarize the Jesus according to the Bible. Not the American Jesus, but the biblical Jesus there in your bulletin. Here's the first one. Jesus is the savior of the world. Simple review. I won't spend time, much time here, but I want you to follow me. When I was a little boy, we lived out in a community called Valley Forge. Now, this is before we went to Eastside. In Valley Forge, we could walk to and from school. Now, this is not one of those stories where I say, yeah, we walked to and from school. It was uphill both ways, barefoot in the snow. That's not one of those stories. This is a story about we walked to school, to and from school, about a mile and a half away, and my mom always told us, stay to the path, stay on the road, and you'll be fine. Whatever you do, and I remember her saying this, do not be tempted to cut through the farmer's land. Don't do that. Always stay to the road, and everything will be fine. Of course, as soon as you tell a little boy that, what's he gonna do? Take a shortcut through the farmer's field. Especially one day, I'd stayed a little bit too long on the playground playing basketball with my mates. And I knew that I was in trouble, that I wasn't gonna make it home on time. And if you're too late, then mom comes looking for you, and that's never good because she ultimately takes you to dad. And so I'm late, and I know I gotta get home. And so I've got this opportunity. I know if I can cut through the farmer's field, I'll be okay. And I cut through the farmer's field. And it wasn't about halfway through the field until I realized why mom told me not to cut through the field. The noise I heard, I'd heard many times before, especially when we'd be picking blackberries. It's the stomping and the snorting of a bull. Now, I was only eight years old. If you've ever been chased by a bull, well, if you haven't, you'll never know what I'm talking about right now. But I'm asking you to bear with me. This bull starts to chase me. Now, I turn around, I look at the bull. First of all, he's just standing still, and he's just stomping and snorting. He's angry, I'm in his territory. And I start to... Kind of do the odds around. Try to figure it out in my mind mathematically. What's the shortest distance? How can I get out of this field? And I often wonder, is the bull doing the same thing? You never know. But I turn and I I notice that the best way out is to go forward. Now, I also believe that if I can start running now, I'll at least get a head start on the bull. But the problem with that is this, as soon as you start running, what happens? The bull also starts running. And so I decided to run. And as I'm running, I'm telling you, the weeds are getting higher. It's harder to run. I'm running as fast as I can. And I'm thinking, why did I do this? My mom loves me. She's like God. She makes her law, not arbitrarily, but it's motivated out of love and compassion for me. I should have obeyed her. I wouldn't be in this position, but I'm lost. I'm not found my way. I'm in big trouble and I'm only eight and I'm going to (laughs) die. And the bull's going to spear me right up against the wall. And I'm running and I'm running and I'm running. I get to the other side and I notice the wall on this side is bigger than the wall I climbed. It's five feet high and there's no way I'm going to get over it. I'm running, I'm running. My whole life, which didn't take very long, is flashing before my eyes. And I get to the other side and just as I get to the other side, Because God is a good loving God and his, and our moms are his representatives. She knew something was wrong and she had come out to the fence and she had climbed up on the wall and her hands were there to pull me back up on the other side. She saved my life. And then she took me home and wore me out. (laughs) But you know, I remember that story growing up and I saw the field again because it is a parable of salvation Jesus, first and foremost of the Bible, is our Savior. He just hopes that sooner or later in your life, you'll get to the point where you realize you've crossed a boundary you should have never crossed, whether it's in a relationship or in a job or in an addiction, whatever. And He doesn't judge you in that. He simply does this, run to me. Run to me and I will save you. I will protect you. Run as fast as you can. And first and foremost, before we go on, the Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus who's the Savior, And Zacchaeus, if you recall that story, found himself in an area or an arena that he should have never gotten involved in, taking and stealing money from other people. But he repented. And in Luke chapter 19, as he runs to Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. In other words, Jesus, his forte is to get us back on track. Now, I want you to pay attention just for a moment. Look up here. Here's my problem. The Jesus of the New Testament is not the American Jesus at all because the American Jesus is inclusive. But the biblical Jesus is exclusive. He says to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And he says, your biggest problem is not more of a commitment or sincerity. Your biggest problem when it comes to your salvation is that you need a sin bearer. You're a sinner, we all are. I am, you are, we are together. And the reality is, Jesus says, God has deemed my sacrifice on the cross to be worthy and to be sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin. But here is my problem, and here's why I don't believe America wants the biblical Jesus, because America doesn't believe in sin anymore. And if the truth be told, there's a lot of you who don't either, or at least that you think you're the judge and you get to determine what is right and wrong, not Jesus. So you only like Jesus as long as he agrees with you. And when he does it, you don't like him or you start saying it must have been cultural. I'm concerned for our country. We've lost our sense of sin and we've lost our sense of shame. There is nothing so vulgar anymore for which you can't fly in a professor from somewhere to justify it. The Jesus of the Bible is different. And I'm concerned for my country that we're moving into Romans 1 territory where the Bible says, do you know it is possible for you even as a believer to be convicted of a sin in your life day after day after day and you ignore that conviction that sooner or later the conviction doesn't have its power anymore and you move into an arena of darkness where you're no longer able to distinguish between what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, what is light, what is darkness. That if you ignore the Spirit's conviction long enough, you can no longer hear the voice of God. That's a scary place to be, not only as a nation, but also as individuals. And the reason we don't like the biblical Jesus is because we don't think we have sin. And if we don't have sin, we don't need a Savior. I just want you to know, first and foremost, the Jesus of the Bible is the Savior of the world. There's a second aspect to this, the second statement, I believe, that summarizes the life of Jesus and who he is, biblically speaking. Jesus is Lord of the earth and Lord of the harvest. Now, I want you to take a deep breath here. I'm going to say some things that are going to be a little difficult to handle. They're difficult for me to say and to handle because they come right back at me, but I want you to stay with me. When I was a little boy, there were four vines, boys, and it was the greatest fear of my mother was a summer with a lot of thunderstorms because that meant she was gonna to have to leave her four boys in the house. And I remember her numerous times coming and saying, all right, kids, I've gotta run some errands or I've gotta to go to work. And she would always say the same thing. Remember, no playing baseball in the house. Now, as soon as she said that, you knew what was going to happen. We were going to be playing baseball in the house. Let me explain it to you. You guys, you know what I'm talking about? The doormat, you move it inside, it becomes home plate. First base is the sofa. Second base is the television set. And third base is the fireplace. And then what you do is you take a piece of paper and you wad it up and you put some masking tape around it and you make it thicker and thicker. If you're really brave, you take some good old duct tape. Then it stings when they try to throw it at you to get you out. Because that's how you get out in indoor baseball. You have to hit the guy with it before he gets to the base. And you always, as brothers, aim for the face. And so you've got this big ball with all this tape around it. And what do you want to do? And we all know that a home run is if you hit it above the mantle, but not the ceiling on that wall space right there above the knickknacks and whatnots that your mother pressures. Uh, She she has such a a prized possession, those knickknacks. If you hit it above that, it's an automatic home run. You jog around the bases. So I'm up to bat. I try to pull one down the third baseline right over the fireplace to get my homer just a little low and it hits the angel my mother's prized knickknack, or whatnot, and the angel falls onto the ground and breaks. And I do what any honorable child would do. I look for the superglue. And so I get the superglue and I glue it back together. I put it on the man. Now, would some woman in this place, for the love of God and the peace of all mankind, tell me how it is my mom could just walk in and know we broke the angel. <laughs> how does that happen? There's no, there weren't any cell phones back then. Nobody called her. How did she know? She walks in, who broke my angel? What? How does that happen? It's like God hated me and he just told her right there. You see, that's the problem with mom. She always comes back home. And she used to say, be sure your sins will find you out. Now follow me here. Philippians 2, a great scene is painted for us by the apostle Paul. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I want you to imagine what that will look like. Stay with me now. you got to grasp this. According to the Bible, what will happen? When Jesus returns, there will be this sea of people, a multitude of people who will be bowing and confessing. It doesn't mean they'll actually believe it, but the Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But Jesus goes to great lengths to teach us during his ministry that the reality is when that day comes, most people will fall into the category of of egocentric, They will have lived their lives for their own purpose, their own goals, their own pursuit, their own selfish aggrandizement, even though they're confessing it because every group will confess, most of the people on that day would have lived an ecocentric life. But then there's another group of people. They're theocentric. They realized a long time ago that this life is not about them. It's about God. It's about what he's doing in your life and about what he's doing in the world. If I'm egocentric, I believe that I am the Lord of my life. It's my life, my money, my rights, my convenience, and my objectives. And my greatest concern is building my kingdom and my relationships and my pleasure. And Jesus says that other group, theocentric, where God is the center, their entire life is interested in what God is doing in the world and how God can use us to impact the world for his name to expand his kingdom on the earth, the highest interest is discovering my gifts and using them for the glory of God. And my most intense belief then becomes that all I have belongs to God. Everything I am is his. And my whole life mission is to take the resources God has given to me and spend least of them, less of them on myself so that I may give more and more away to expand his kingdom on the earth. And the greatest passion that those who are theocentric have is to bring others to God.
1: Thank you for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. That's all we have time for today. But next time, Pastor Jeff will continue with some defining statements about the biblical Jesus in Perception May Not Be Reality.
0: But the Bible says the day will come when He's had enough. I am tired of the evil in this world propagated by the devil and his followers. I'm going to put an end to it all once and for all. And Jesus, the peaceful Lamb, becomes the wrathful Lamb.
1: Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life.